Welcome to Studies in the Scriptures with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, a broadcast ministry of Return to the Word and made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome back to Studies in the Scriptures. In our last study, we were looking at 2 Peter 3. The Apostle Peter warned us of the need to make sure we have an accurate interpretation of God's Word. 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. Let me go ahead and read it again. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. A couple of key points that we brought out is first that Peter said some scriptures are hard to be understood. Peter also warns about those who are unlearned and unstable, who twist or pervert the scriptures. They twist them out of their context. They twist or pervert them out of their meaning. It's not good enough just to be in the book. You have to come to it with a methodology, an approach that is consistent with how God intends us to understand his word. Peter viewed Paul's epistles as possessing the same level of inspiration as the other scriptures. Not only does the New Testament authenticate the Old Testament, but the New Testament authenticates itself. So we study to be approved unto God. We study to rightly divide the word of truth, to consider what God says. Otherwise, if we twist the scriptures, we can hurt others and ourselves in the faith. Last time, we just got started with our 10 principles of biblical interpretation. We are looking at methods to help us rightly divide the text. There are three basic steps to Bible study. You observe the text. This answers the question, what does this say? What do we see in the text? You need to get into the mindset of being like a detective and searching out God's truth. This, we said, is the deep dive looking for clues, keys that open the door of your understanding of the truth. Ask questions and look for the answers. Don't settle for a superficial understanding. And do not believe everything you hear. Look at it for yourself. We can be thankful that we have good translations of the Bible. Use more than one. Observation is first. This is where you should spend most of your time. Then you must interpret the text. This answers the question, what does this mean? The better you do when you observe the passage, the less you will struggle to interpret the passage. Based on the observations of the text, we can determine the meaning intended by the author to his audience. Your observations of the passage will determine your interpretation of the text. A lot of people also like to jump right to interpreting the text based on their favorite commentaries, their favorite authors, or what they hear on Christian radio. But then you are bringing interpretation into the word without letting the text first speak for itself instead of looking for the intended meaning of the words that God had in mind. Observe, interpret, and then you apply the text. This answers the question, where and how does this apply? Application starts with us, because the best way to communicate God's word is after you have applied it to yourself. 1 Timothy 4.16, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. After you apply it, then and only then is the application for your audience, those you teach, 
Accurate observations lead to a correct interpretation, which leads to the right application. If you fail to apply what you have learned, you have failed to study the Bible as God intended, because the object of Bible study is not just head knowledge. The goal is a changed life. Observe, interpret, and then apply. And then secondly, the goal of this entire process, the goal of biblical interpretation, is to understand the meaning of the text as it was originally intended, and then let the Word of God change us. There is inherent meaning in the words themselves that God put there. It doesn't matter what I think it means, and it doesn't matter what you think it means. It matters what the human author and the divine author meant as the words were written down. Our job is never to bring meaning to the text. Our job is to understand the meaning that God already put there. We're always looking for the original meaning intended by God. And when you talk about the bridges to be crossed, when trying to accurately interpret the text, you have to consider the time it was written, the historical setting, the geography around the text. If I was writing an account about how the Japanese invaded the Aleutian Islands in World War II, and if I made references to the isolated location, the cold temperatures, the mountains, all of these background references would play a role in your understanding of my account. And the Bible is no different. Why? Why is the Bible no different? Well, it's not different because God is not trying to confuse us. He wrote it down in a way that we can understand. God used our method of communication. He is the one who gave us languages. And so we have to look at the geographical setting, the culture, the language, the literary form, and let us never forget that God himself is the author. Our goal is to know his word. Three, interpret the Bible Literally, take words, phrases, and sentences in their usual, normal, natural, ordinary sense. The Bible was meant to be understood without us having to look for any deeper or secret hidden meanings. This is what we mean by literal interpretation of the scriptures. You would like to assume this is pretty straightforward, but in this day and age, we cannot take anything for granted. So before we move on, I'd like to take a look at a couple of examples of what we're talking about. We're going to start with the basic, but remember, we're setting our foundation. Let's turn over to Genesis 2, and we'll look first at verse 7. In Genesis 2, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Skip down to verse 15. Let's read again verses 15 through 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. A lot of people approach the Bible with the idea that it's hard to understand or that it has some mystical meaning. But what we all need to remember, that God means what he says, and he says what he means. Just think of the following words from the verses we just looked at and ask yourself, what do these words mean? Dust, ground, nostrils, man, garden, tree, eat, die. All of these words mean exactly what they say. The man Adam was literally formed out of the dust of the ground and God literally breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man was literally put into a literal garden to tend it and was given the one prohibition that if he ate of the literal tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, he would surely die. I hope you get the point. 
We're to interpret the Bible literally. I said literally many times, taking the words, phrases, and sentences in their usual, normal, natural, and ordinary sense. We all know what happened in Genesis 3. Eve was tempted by Satan to disobey God, and she did so by eating from the forbidden tree. She gave the fruit to Adam, and he also ate. Sin entered into the world because of their rebellion against God. Now, as simple as this is, some people actually teach that the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 was not eating fruit in disobedience to God's command, but it was physical relations. They come to this meaning by allegorizing, spiritualizing, by looking for the hidden meaning in these passages. Allegorizing or spiritualizing the text is one of the greatest sources of confusion in the church today. If you approach the scriptures with this mindset, your imagination becomes the authority, not God's word. Listen to Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be a ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Now, what did Micah mean in 5.2 when he said that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem? Well, he meant exactly what he wrote. And we know that Jesus was born in a literal place called Bethlehem, exactly as predicted by the prophet. Let me just give you one more. Listen to Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What did Isaiah mean when he wrote that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a child? He meant that Christ would be born of a literal virgin, and this is exactly what we see recorded in the New Testament. But how many today deny the virgin birth of Christ? So if we're thinking about Bible study methods, what is the opposite of taking the literal approach to Scripture? Well, the opposite of a literal approach to Scripture is allegorizing or spiritualizing, which looks for secret or deeper meanings, and this method of interpretation relies on the imagination of the interpreter. But what about figures of speech? Well, when the plain sense of Scripture makes no sense, it must be figurative or symbolic. But we have to be very careful with this. Start with the literal meaning. Then when you run into something where the plain sense of Scripture makes no sense, it must be figurative or symbolic. But again, be careful with this. Just because there are figures of speech, it does not mean you have to look for secret meanings to understand them. Listen to John 10, 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Now, this is an obvious figure of speech. And ask yourself, is there some secret meaning to what Jesus is saying? Let's turn there and let's put this into context by reading the first nine verses of John 10. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And will go in and out and find pasture. 
If you remember from our last study, we talked about different bridges that you have to cross. In this case, we are talking about the historical, cultural, and geographical bridges. Get yourself a good Bible dictionary so you can look up basic facts as you study about their politics, their religion, economy, the legal structure of the Jews and the Romans, their buildings, clothing, how they dress, military, geography, social structure, and here in John 10, their farm life. In that geographic region, in that Jewish culture, during this period of time, these words had a different understanding than they would today. Sometimes they would build enclosures out of rock. Other times they would just use caves and the shepherd would lay down across the opening, positioning himself as the door of the sheep pen at night to assure that his sheep could not get out and other animals or thieves could not go in without going through him. He would call to the sheep to lead them in and out of the pasture and the sheep would recognize the shepherd's voice and follow him. And so when you set this passage into its historical and cultural context, the meaning of the figure of speech is clear. Jesus was saying that he is the door of the sheepfold, meaning that he positioned himself in the entrance of the sheepfold. No sheep could get into or out of the sheepfold without going through him. There is no hidden meaning here. There's a figure of speech that is used, but we use figures of speech all the time in our everyday language. And the meaning is clear here in John 10. In order to be a part of God's sheepfold, in order to be considered to be a part of his sheep, there is one way in, through the door, Jesus Christ. When talking about figures of speech, one of the reasons I recommended this book last time by Roy Zuck about basic Bible interpretation is because it has an entire section of all the types of figures of speech used in the Bible. Can I show you how this helps us? Let me give you a practical illustration. We have seen this in Revelation with the book of life. It is the register of those who will receive eternal life. Read Revelation 17, 8 with me. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. God says that his people have had their names written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Revelation 20 tells us anyone not written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. God's people have been included in the book of life from the foundation of the world. But then look at Revelation 3, 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, Christians come to this and they think that they can have their names blotted out of the book of life, which doesn't fit with Revelation 17, 8, and their names being written before the foundation of the world. Which one is it? You understand Revelation 3, 5 by understanding that this is just simply an example of a figure of speech known as litities. We would call it an understatement where you say a positive truth by negating the opposite. Can you think of an example in English? How about not that bad? By negating the word bad, you are saying that something is good or at least okay. But most of the time we use it as an understatement like not bad, not bad at all, meaning that you're pretty excited about it. And this is the figure of speech used in Revelation 3. 
It's not a statement that Christians can have their name blotted out of the book of life or that Christians can lose their salvation. It's a figure of speech that is negating the negative, telling the church they will be clothed in white garments. God will confess their names before his Father in heaven. And here is the good news. In no way will he blot out our names from the book of life. This is just one of 25 types of figures of speech used in the Bible. Let me give you some others. Irony, hyperbole, rhetorical questions, a euphemism. A euphemism is where we substitute a harsh statement like he died with a softer statement like he passed on or he kicked a bucket. Personification, where human characteristics or actions are assigned to inanimate objects. Let me give you one of these. Isaiah 35, verse 1. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. In this case, emotion is assigned to the desert. A metonymy is substituting one word for another. When we refer to a decision being made by the White House, what do we mean? We mean the President of the United States because we have substituted the President with the White House. Similes are used, a comparison where one thing resembles another. A simile uses the word like or as. Can you spot it in 1 Peter 1.24, where it says, Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away. Well, what is the simple point? Well, all flesh is as grass or like grass, short-lived. These are the figures of speech that we use. And these are some of the figures of speech God used because he was simply trying to communicate with his people. He's done his part and it's up to you with the help of God living in you to do your part and become a student of his word. But what I want you to see is that when it comes to figures of speech, there is no hidden secret meaning here. The figures of speech provide an illustration that helps to clarify the spiritual principle. Behind every figure of speech, there's a literal meaning that is not that difficult to understand. Now, that raises the question, what must we pay close attention to? And the answer is that you must pay close attention to the context of any passage. A lot of people go down a wrong theological road because they piece together their doctrines by not analyzing the context or by taking a word, phrase, or verse out of its context. This brings us to our fourth principle. Interpret each verse or passage of Scripture in its context, noting who wrote it, how was it written, was the passage written by an apostle or an Old Testament prophet, who is speaking in the context, to whom was it written, to church-age believers, to the nation of Israel, to the unsaved, where is it located in the Scriptures, not just Old Testament versus the New Testament question, but is it in a historical book, poetic, prophetic, the Gospels, or epistles? It's important to keep the genre of the book in mind. When was it written? Before the cross, during the earthly ministry of Christ, or after the cross? What precedes it? What verses precede it? What groundwork has already been laid? For example, Paul in his epistles always lays a doctrinal foundation before he makes an application with his commands. What follows it? Where is the writer going with this? And how is it related to other scriptures? Let me give you a a famous example of how important this is. One of the most known Bible verses, Jeremiah 29, verse 11. 
For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. If we look at the context, what do we see? This is God's word to the people of Jerusalem, of the nation of Israel, when they were being hauled off into captivity, telling the people to settle in and get comfortable in Babylon, because God was going to keep them there for a long time. Look at just one more verse before, Jeremiah 29, verse 10. It says, For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. It turns out by looking at the context that it's not a specific promise for us Christians. It was written to Israel that God would restore them and return them to their land from captivity. Learn to look at the context before you jump to conclusions. We have to leave it here for this time. Next time, we're going to look at the applications of this and move on to the rest of the principles. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Studies in the Scriptures. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path.